What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I sat down with Jordan Schechtel behind the Dossier Substack, an independent journalist who's been putting out some really good information uh, as it pertains to the, the Davos class, what they're doing behind the scenes, and bringing to light information about the COVID pandemic that is not being presented in the mainstream. And on top of that, he's been getting heavily into Bitcoin as well. And so I, I figured the emergence of indie journalism in Bitcoin is a natural one. Jordan is a personification of that. And we just had a lovely two-hour conversation. I think you guys are going to enjoy thoroughly. This rip is brought to you by good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. You can do so much more with your sats now. They just upgraded. They're rolling out Lightning Network payment ability on the Cash App this week. I got access to it last week. I think they're doing a slow roll working out the kinks, but it does work. I have paid Lightning Network invoices successfully from the Cash App. Cash App makes it easy to stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats, if you so please. If you haven't downloaded the app yet, make sure you use the code stacking sats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10. And $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to help you secure your Bitcoin wealth. Bitcoin is generational wealth. <clears throat> and Unchained is here to provide you services to help you secure that generational wealth and eliminate single points of failure as you secure that wealth. If you have all your Bitcoin on an exchange, and it's just sitting there. That's a single point of failure. If that exchange gets rug pulled. If that, for some reason the government says you can't send your Bitcoin anymore, uh, single point of failure. You get locked on there. Single seed wallets. Uh, uh, single point of failure as well. If you lose your wallet and your backup, you're shit out of luck. Unchained has a collaborative custody model, two or three multi-sig where you hold two keys. Unchained holds the third key. Uh, you always have full control of your Bitcoin if you have your two keys. You move it in and out of the wallet, of uh, the multi-sig vault as you so please. If you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig signature. It helps you distribute your risk uh, and, and have a better peace of mind with your Bitcoin security setup at the end of the day. They have a white glove concierge service. It's going to take you from zero to having your vault set up with a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats in the vault. If you tell them the TFTC sent you, you're going to get $50 off the package, which includes multiple video conference calls to get you comfortable with the vault. Uh, they're going to send you hardware wallets, help you get those set up. They're going to set the vault up with you. And again, dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats in that. Vault, check out everything they have going on at Unchained at unchained.com. Uh, they have an incredible blog. They have more products beyond the Vault product. Uh, they're doing incredible things in the Bitcoin space. This rip is also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Brains. Brains is the team behind Slush Pool, which is the oldest Bitcoin mining pool in existence. Launched in 2010. They're also the team behind Brains OS Plus auto-tuning firmware, which allows you to stack more hash and thus more sats with your ASICs. Okay, so if you have an ASIC compatible model that is able to have Brains OS Plus firmware downloaded onto it and you are not using Brains, you're leaving sats on the table. Uh, on top of that, if you're in the mining game and you want to get a bunch of insights and data into what's going on in the mining world, uh, how profitable your particular setup may be, what your cost of mine Bitcoin is, they have insights.brains. That's brains with two Y's, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. Uh, you go there. There's a plethora of data and resources to 
get a better understanding of what's going on in the mining industry at any given point in time. Go check out everything they have going on at brains.com. It's brains with two eyes. Brains. This work was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. We're here uh, to allow you to use your Bitcoin as collateral to get uh, liquidity, stablecoin liquidity, uh, while engaged, leveraging Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to ensure that your Bitcoin isn't being rehypothecated throughout the duration of your loan. How it works, uh, you put your Bitcoin, you go to lend.hodlhodl.com, you go to the marketplace, and if you want to get some liquidity, you put your Bitcoin up as collateral on a two or three multi-sig, you hold a key, your counterparty holds a key, Hoddle Hoddle holds the third key. Uh, you don't have control of the Bitcoin in that multi-sig wallet, but you do have visibility into it so that you know that your sats are not being rehypothecated and you're going to get them back at the end of the day if you're paying your stablecoin lo loan back. Uh, if you want to get yield on your stablecoins, you want to enter the other side of the marketplace, you can do so. You put it up for people looking for liquidity and then you get your what you put up plus interest back at the end of the day. So go check all this out at lend.hodlhodl.com. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Bitcoin 2022, which is the largest Bitcoin event in the world that will be taking place on April 6th to the 9th in Miami Beach, Florida. Florida. All four days will be exciting uh, and will be jam-packed with the exclusive content. Uh, it is incredible. Um, messing this one up. It has an incredible... Sorry, we just got a new script in. Uh, lineup of Bitcoin speakers, artists, and leaders. Day one is industry day for enterprising Bitcoiners who are looking to build a business or career within the ecosystem. Day two and three... Our general conference day is featuring speakers like El Salvador President Nayib Bukele, who was promised a big surprise at the conference, as well as CEOs like Michael Saylor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Mallers, Adam Back, and hundreds more. The conference caps off on the fourth day with the world's first largest Bitcoin music festival, Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic. Stevie Aoki got added to the list uh, in the last week. From the Jewels did as well. CL, San Holo, Dead Mouse is going to be there. It'll be a, a bumping day. I don't know what day the ninth is. I imagine it's a Sunday, but it seems like it's going to be a good one. Uh, last year's conference sold out and this year's is on pace to be 3x larger. So make sure you grab your tickets before it's too late. Visit b.tc slash conference to learn more. Pay in Bitcoin to save and use promo code TFTC for 10% off. And I will see you in Miami where Matt and I will be recording a live RHR. Whew. That was a long one, Car. I know the ads are getting long for you, so I'm sorry. Uh, enjoy this rip with Jordan. It's a hell of a conversation. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here for another episode of TFTC. Very excited for this conversation. I'm sitting down with Jordan Schechtel, who is the writer of the dossier on Substack, is a great independent journalist, and has been getting into Bitcoin. We've been doing like a little Twitter flirting, like, I like your stuff, you like my stuff, we retweet each other. Uh, I really like what you're producing uh, in the indie media space, uh, especially as it pertains to COVID and going against the mainstream narrative and bringing to light information that the mainstream refuses to. 
Uh, and then uh, it's nice seeing you as an independent journalist getting into free sovereign money in Bitcoin. It was a long-winded intro, but welcome to the podcast, sir. Yeah, thanks so, so thanks so much for having me, Marty. And uh, I, I really appreciate the intro and the shout out and all that. And uh, you know, I've been a, um, I'm a pretty, I guess, recent listener within the last year to your podcast and uh, your live streams. And, and I'm learning a lot from you guys too. And I really appreciate that. Your podcast has especially helped, you know, reinforce kind of the um, the Bitcoin only commitment as opposed to, you know, I, I started out. Um, I, I think a lot of people have had a similar origin story several years ago um, during kind of like where Bitcoin became noticeable to the public. So like, you know, I was kind of like a, a lost shit coiner for a few years. But <laughs> the, the more you read about Bitcoin, I think the more it kind of like reinforces the position that um, I, I mean, for me, it's just Bitcoin only right now. And I don't see any other possible uh, you know, feasible alternative. So, you know, I, it, it took me a long way. And I think it takes a lot of people a long time to get to that Bitcoin only place with all the noise and all the shit coins in the world and all that nonsense. But you know, I'm happy to be here. And I, I definitely give you and, you know, some other Bitcoiners a lot of credit for getting me to that place. <clears throat> well, thank you for that. I'm flattered. And I went on that journey as well. I mean, as somebody who got into this this scene in like 2013, 2014, dove headfirst in the shit coins and you learn your lesson, you touch the stove, but then you come back. And I think for the context of this conversation, I mean, it is imperative. I think you see it on the media side with what you're doing at the dossier. And it's really reinforced on the Bitcoin side as well. Like there are people that don't want you to, to share certain opinions or have certain opinions in the first place. And they will do what they can to try to censor you, whether that be on online by deplatforming you on a content distribution site or monetarily by deplatforming you from a, a bank or a payment processor. And so seeing the two come together has been has been really incredible. They're a match made in heaven. Obviously, WikiLeaks was one of the first large proponents of Bitcoin in the early days because they desperately needed it. And um, as somebody who is doing independent media with a Bitcoin tilt, I think this trend's only going to continue as we move forward, which leads me to like, how did you get into Bitcoin um, in the first place and, and why it seems like over the last year, particularly, you've been getting more and more vocal about your support for it? Yeah, it was kind of just, um, I've always been... Uh, you're very much guided by a free market philosophy and kind of like the more you grow to understand the system. Like I just spent, before I moved to Florida, I just spent six years in Washington, DC, um, working in a variety of outfits, um, closely connected and to the government and in the private sector. And you learn of like this institutional corruption and deceit and how you know you need to play a certain game to become a part of the system, and it very much um, you know it, there's a parallel in New York with the monetary system and Wall Street, and then you learn about these parallel systems in the Fed, and basically how you are not designed to be a part of the system um, unless you really accommodate your system and work your way within the system, and you know I think that that is garbage. It's um, very much anti-freedom and um, I, gu I guess what kind of drove me into um, this this space uh, several years ago was just like 
you know, it's just kind of like interested in seeing what's going on out there. Uh, I think a lot of people were, are just, were solely interested in, you know, turning a nice profit um, when you couldn't really make money and all the, um, you know, the institutions are offering 0.1% savings forever. So everyone's just trying to find a way to, you know, grow their wealth. And that was probably just like the basic reasoning. And then you just find out, um, you know, about the power of Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, I can just go on and on about uh, you know, how it's kind of tethered to free market economics. And I, I just, you know, it, it's so nice to be able to save in a monetary system and support a monetary system that is genuinely moral principles. And, you know, we, we live in a very interesting time in human history where there's all this crazy stuff going on around us. And, you know, it's nice to be able to have Bitcoin while all these kind of like, you know, there's this great intersection between this COVID mania stuff and the Bitcoin space because Bitcoin presents uh, definitely a feasible alternative to, you know, this, this absolute madness. Um, you know, if we were dealing with this 20 years ago with the same technological components, but without Bitcoin, I think we'd be very screwed. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to, you know, be promoting a system that I think can win in the long run. And it's like, it's so cool that the, you know, the incentive structure for Bitcoin makes it so, I mean, at least I'm convinced that it's also, you know, probably the best um, savings technology of our lifetimes. And it's just like, kind of like a extra benefit. Like I would support Bitcoin, even if it was like, you know, losing money against the dollar, just the principles of the system itself. You know, it would be like a voluntary donation type thing for me. But, um, you know, it, it's it's really cool. You know, you have both of those angles. You have monetary freedom and then you have uh, monetary accumulation too. So it's just, uh, you know, I'm really hopeful to, uh, you know, to see, uh, continue to see the rest of the world um, buy into Bitcoin. You know, the latest news with Intel um, apparently is going to build chips for ASIC miners and that's amazing. And I think it'll contribute a lot towards the space. You know, it's a company valued at hundreds of billions of dollars. And I think that's just huge. And I think they're, they're going to announce it at a conference next month or something, but yeah, there's a lot of cool things going on and you, you continue to see this. So hopefully the, uh, the, the fiat price will eventually accommodate this. I shouldn't even be talking about this because I know it's like a time preference thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably like coming off as a cuck to no, stop it. Price, but, no, you're but, fine. Uh, <laughs> Definitely not coming off as a cuck. And <laughs> I, I mean, Intel getting into the fray is like, all right, let's see what you release next month. I would love for you to actually produce ASICs, number one, because it would shorten the supply chain of uh, <laughs> a chip being produced to getting it plugged in here in the United States, which would be massive. And then you have a duopoly essentially right now, the, the ASIC game with Bitmain and MicroBT. So it'd be nice to add some competition between those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I mean... We've seen the rise of Bitcoin over the last decade alongside the rise of independent media. And it is natural at some point in the future they are going to converge because independent media, if it's getting deplatformed and demonetized, is going to need an uncensorable distributed cash system in Bitcoin. We've already seen the convergence of indie media and Bitcoin via podcasting 2.0, which this podcast will go out and it'll be 
injected with SATs because we'll we'll have a lightning address in our RSS feed that allow people to send us money, uh, leveraging the distributed cash system and Bitcoin, the distributed content syndication uh, network that is RSS feeds. Um, and I think these two tools, particularly indie media and Bitcoin, are desperately needed right now. And that's why I'm very excited to have you on because you've been pushing hard on the indie media side of things with the, with the dossier, uh, shifting to that specifically there right now. Like what? forced you into the market of becoming a quote-unquote independent journalist, uh, creating the dossier and, and coming in day in and day out and providing a, another perspective uh, that, that really doesn't always jive well with the mainstream narrative at any given point in time. Most recently, you've been focused on COVID, but you've ventured other topics that, that we touch on here at TFTC as well. Yeah, so I kind of started after about a decade of being not really in the corporate press, but in a lot of right of center media outlets in the United States. And, you know, I, I grew my following to a certain point where I figured, you know, why not take a shot? I think I have a lot of interesting things to say. And I'd rather just have people directly support my work than to be kind of like working for the man. I'm sure you can relate to it as you have your own business or podcast, that kind of stuff. So it, it's, um, it, it's very empowering. And I think it makes you um, when you're when you're working for yourself, it makes you probably do your best work because you're holding yourself totally accountable for everything. You know, there's no possible excuses, um, as like a lot of these corporate press the writers. When whenever there's like an unflattering headline, they kind of just like blame their editor or say, "Oh, I can't write about this. I can't write about that." Um, and, and the corporate press is like institutionally corrupt. Um, I wouldn't want to. I don't understand people. Well, I do understand people who just want to like work for the New York Times and receive awards and Pulitzers and all this, you know, credential system nonsense. But it's like, uh, you know, it, it doesn't impress me at all. So I'd much rather be on Substack, you know, joining interesting people like Glenn Greenwald, Alex Berenson, uh, Matt Taibbi. I think Robert Malone just got on Substack, the, uh, you know, who has all those mRNA patents. Um, and there's a lot of, I think that the best work is, is now being done independently, the best investigations, the best reporting, the best analysis. Um, these like, you know, if you work for one of these kind of like right of center or left of center media operations, it's just like click farms. Um, and I, I don't think that people go to my site to see, um, you know, just like me aggregating some nonsensical headlines about shootings in you know some random state i think they actually want to see you know some independent journalism and analysis and you know i try to provide a unique angle on every story or try to write about something that i think that isn't being covered enough so that's why i think it was a natural fit for me to kind of like go independent it was just um for me i think i do my best work uh, without any kind of like you know, I'm a team player, but I do my best work just when I totally have to rely on myself. And it's just the most freeing thing when you've, I think you need to at least like, if you're going to go to Substack for aspiring writers, you definitely, it, it's advantageous to first kind of like build a platform, whether that's on, um, you know, the these institutional big tech giants like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, but, you know, try to like leverage them at least to um, make a name for yourself in these spaces. And then you can really, um, change a lot of minds. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's been incredible to see the the rise of Substack. You see Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, others that you mentioned go over there and they're doing, like you said, some of their best work. And, and I guess, how does, for you personally, moving from one of these corporate media outlets to going independent and then having a platform like Substack, which makes it relatively easy to monetize. When you first got on a Substack, were you worried that people would pay for the newsletter. Somebody has run his newsletter right now. I monetize my newsletter via ads. And I'm like, all right, should I go to Substack, cut the ads um, and make it easier? Or um, so how, how's that monetization experience been um, for you? Was it uh, better than expected, worse than expected? Not to get too personal here. Yeah, no, no, it, it's all good. Um, I, I think that when I first started, I really had no idea, but I was just kind of not... Um, I was not a fan of just kind of working within that infrastructure. And I wanted to get out of Washington, D.C. I was actually going to be um, working. (laughs) I've come a long way in in a year or so. I was going to be working in the federal government um, in in international affairs because that's where my education and uh, my graduate school education, too, is in that topic. Um, So when Trump lost, you know, I was going to be a political appointee. So I wouldn't have, I would have been fired within three months. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get back into this journalism space. And I didn't really want to do that stuff anyway. Um, So I was like, all right, I'm not going to work for one of these big uh, conservative outlets because it just bores me, but I have this platform. So let's take a shot with Substack. You know, you start with zero. So it's a little, um, uh, you know, if you don't have any, uh, you know, monetary savings and uh, fiat, I guess, or even like, you don't want to spend your Bitcoin. So you ideally want to have some type of fiat stash. Um, so I, I was in a fortunate enough situation where I was comfortable to start this project. And it's done very, it's been around, Dossier has been around for a little over a year now. And it, it, it's doing well. You know, we're at, um, most of the content is available for free. And I think people are just genuinely want to support my work. It's very interesting because I was trying to figure out like, okay, so how much do I want behind the paywall, you know, try to get more people to subscribe and and pay. And it seems that people, there's just a lot of genuine people who want to support good work, who will do so without, you know, you having to like throw perks at them, you know, and I I support that. Um, People who subscribe to my Substack, the the biggest perk is actually, um, my, my personal email. So I, I get a lot of emails from, from paid subscribers and I try to respond to all of them. Um, but, you know, like genuinely honored when people subscribe to my work because they know that, you know, they're basically just doing so to help, so help support me doing my best work. And it, it's just, you know, it's just a, a great honor to see um, a lot of feedback on that front. But yeah, the project's going, it, it's going really well. And, you know, I'm going to continue to to do it um, into the future. And um, it, it's, it's a terrific platform um, for, for writers that want to get started on Substack. I think it's the best one out there. Um, you know, you only have, uh, they, they do take fees, but, you know, you, you are totally, the, the email list is available to you for download at any time. And then they use Stripe as a payment processor which I hope will get back into Bitcoin because I think they had done Bitcoin payments for a while, but they stopped in 2018. 
And I think they're like flirting with getting back into it, but that would be very nice if they would choose to do so again. So let's hope they jump back into the space. Yeah, Stripe uh, has a lot of stellar lumens on their on their balance sheet. They they like the uh, so I think they in the past have postured uh, to be a stellar company, but I think recently one of their head engineers mentioned that he's very intrigued by the Lightning Network, which is good to see. Yeah, I don't think there's much long-term value in being a stellar company. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't see that lasting for too long. Neither do I. Jed McCaleb, he's always good with the scams. You got Mt. Gox, uh, Ripple, Stellar. Uh, I think he's on his, onto his fourth now. Um, so beware. Beware of any anything that Jed McCaleb touches. You know, I, I've been reading around Ripple. Like, talk about something that disgusts me. There's all of these people, um, actually some people that I met in Miami, and they're like, oh, yeah, we got in early on the... Uh, on the pre-mine on Ripple. And I was like, this, this conversation just disgusts me. Like you guys, <laughs> they're like, they're like 500 to a thousand X and they're just like pumping this stupid shit coin. They have no idea what it does. I still, it's not really clear. Like, you know, if people even use this thing for anything, because apparently there's like all these separate entities and it's just like, um, I don't want to get you in trouble, but am I allowed to label it a scam on this show? Oh yeah. You, you okay. don't have to. It's like the most, <laughs> Like once you know people that have invested in this stuff, it's just like it's just like oh my god, this is the most transparent, ridiculous like finance scam I've seen in a while. <laughs> well, so, what's even worse is behind the scenes is what you don't know is Ripple has very strong lobbying power, and they're one of the, mm-hmm. the big forces behind the the attempt to paint Bitcoin's proof of work as some environment destroying mechanism that needs to be stopped at all cost. Uh, you need to support the less energy intensive Ripple, not the the energy behemoth that is Bitcoin. So they do that and then uh, a bunch of other scammy shit. Uh, but you live and you learn. These people, they're, uh, Ripple will be around. It's always going to be around because they have that like staying power of the, the legal team that can keep themselves relevant longer than they actually are. So we'll put up with the Ripple stuff. It's going to happen. Hopefully Stripe doesn't implement it. I don't think they will. Um, but uh, going back to like monetizing content directly, like the people that are paying for the dossier, you said they, they want to get good information. Like it, it, not only is it a testament to the information you're bringing them and the quality of the work that you do, it's a testament to the the thirst, the uh, the hunger for actual good information that isn't uh, a spoon fed narrative from a corporate press with a lot of puppet masters above it. And that's why I love what you're doing at the dossier, particularly as it relates to all the information that we're being fed around COVID is like people are literally have been watching this for two years and they've seen the narrative change many times, whether it be about how long we're going to be locked down, uh, how many vaccines you need, what, uh, how virulent the variants will be. Um, there's been this run in the mill, hand-fed, spoon-fed, corporate press narrative that has been exhausting and relentless. And then you have people literally going and seeking out and paying for information that dives deeper into the information, which you've done. Um, and what I reached out to you specifically for to set up this interview is the fact that like none of these... Va- is it true that there's not a FDA-approved vaccine on the market right now? Yeah, so this is unbelievable. I wrote about this, um, I think, earlier this month, and I did a lot of research into this um, and made sure to fully confirm it because, you know, every reporter gets burned from time to time. 
Um, yeah, there is no FDA approved uh, COVID vaccine that is available in the United States, and there will not be one for an indefinite period of time. What happened was that the Biden administration made this big display of having the FDA, basically forcing the FDA, um, because if you remember, two people uh, quit, two high ranking FDA, FDA officials quit before they approved this vaccine. But they had the FDA push through approval for a COVID vaccine. But I think there was some kind of backroom deal that happened because Pfizer has never allowed for the FDA approved version to be um, sold to the masses. So anyone can fact check this and call their uh, local pharmacist or doctor's office and ask them if they have the FDA approved vaccine. And I guarantee you they will they do not have it. They might say, oh, you know, we have the EUA version, which is the same thing and same formulation. But there is a legally distinct FDA approved COVID vaccine called Comirnaty, C-O-M-I-R-N-A-T-Y. And it is nowhere to be found in the United States. And there's a lot of um, legal experts. There's quite a few legal experts in this field who sue vaccine companies who are very much convinced that it is not available because it it opens up Pfizer in particular to a litigation that they don't want to be a part of. So they've decided along with like this vaccine mafia that includes Johnson and Johnson and Moderna that the EUA vaccines offer them better protection and they're going to act essentially as like this three company cartel and offer EUA vaccines it seems forever. I mean it, 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 why isn't any reporter asking why Moderna or Johnson & Johnson is like they're not really pushing for FDA approval? Like, don't you think they'd want FDA approval so they could put it on their vaccines? It, it's just a very strange and it, it's clearly it, it's just 100 percent a, a legal maneuver. Um, and I think it's like one of the biggest stories ongoing right now that everyone, especially the military members who are all. Uh, coerced into taking this shot. A lot of them didn't want to take it and they would have been, uh, you know, almost the equivalent of dishonorably discharged for not taking it. And they have not approved basically any exemptions. So, and this is all based on the idea that the vaccine is FDA approved. But if you can't get the FDA approved vaccine, it doesn't, you know, it's just like, it's just words on paper. It means, it means nothing. So, so in reality, there, there is no FDA-approved vaccine available in, in the United States. It was basically a giant info op that oh, you know, <laughs> all these Americans fell for. I think if you were to ask the average man on the street, um, is there an FDA-approved vaccine, they would say yes. I think the vast majority of Americans would say yes, but it turns out it's very much not the case at all. There is an FDA-approved vaccine, but none of you are getting it. It's uh, mm-hmm. It's off the market for some reason or another. And like you said, it seems that it is pure legal maneuvering to prevent the possibility for individuals to sue Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson for adverse effects from the vaccine, which seem to be pretty prevalent if you look at VAERS data, if you trust that. So that's another thing too, like how in the digital age, in a world of that is flooded with information, how do we, that's been the most confusing part of the last two years. How can we tell what is real and what is not? Like how, what do we believe? How can we believe the bears database? The experts are telling us 
the quote unquote experts are telling us that all the, there's a bunch of misinformation that's preventing more people from getting the vaccine as an independent journalist trying to unearth and highlight all of this information. How do you approach like discerning the, the true from the false uh, in regards to this particular topic? I think because I've been in this space for a little bit, I have a, a bit of a competitive advantage when it comes to like dissecting truths from falsehoods. A lot of it has to do with the actual, you know, reporters on the bylines themselves. Like, you know, what have these people done in the past? Have they reported that Donald Trump is a Russian agent? Because then I probably won't um, believe what they have to say about the latest press release from Pfizer and Moderna. So a lot of it is that. But then there's like this institutional corruption, deceit, manipulation, cartelization problem. And it runs very deep. And, it, and it's... I, 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 don't have a good answer, unfortunately. Like I, even before this COVID mania stuff began, I don't know about you, but if, if I were to walk into my doctor's office and said, oh, you know, you need these like two vaccines, I should, would have just been like, oh yeah, hit me with it. And now my, my present perspective is, is, okay, I need to do the research on all of this stuff before I ever, you know, I felt like, I feel like I was so naive back then just to believe, trust the experts, blah, 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 you know, all these bumper sticker lines. Um, Sadly, you know, the state of affairs in the media and the government and this ruling class in the United States abroad, it just means that we have to do our own research um, and, and you know, uh, just read as many smart, independent people as possible, try to verify their credentials and verify what they're saying as much as you can. But yeah, it's definitely the era of, um, you know, do not trust and verify, which is, is also, you know, one of the fundamental uh, taglines of Bitcoin itself. So it's, um, it lines up well, uh, you know, there's just so much institutional ridiculousness, especially in the pharmaceutical industry. If anyone hasn't seen who, uh, Dope Stick on Hulu, that's a really great show that shows um, that they've been playing this game for a long time. Um, with the opioid crisis, it was <laughs> like bonkers. And I highly recommend that show. If you want to learn more about uh, the pharmaceutical industry, that's a really good starting pack right there. It's really pernicious because, it, and it's so odd how for many years leading up to the pandemic, it was very widely accepted that the pharmaceutical companies are uh, putting profits over the health of the individuals that they, they claim to be serving, most notably uh, the the ratcheting up of the opioid crisis, literally having big pharma companies just be pill pushers on, on a whole goddamn country and whole planet uh, to some extent, if you will. And it, it was crazy how as soon as COVID hit and you have potentially the makings of a mass psychosis, uh, the big pharma comes in like, here's your way out. This, these vaccines, it's going to be two doses at first. Uh, oh, hey, actually you need a third. And Israel, now you need a fourth. Um, and everybody's like, give it to me, give it to me. And only months earlier, I believe, like the pharmacist on Netflix uh, came out like late 2019 or something like that. People were calling uh, Big Pharma one of the e most evil industries on the planet. Uh, and it's just really it, funny how so quickly they became heroes. The, the timeline for the release of these so-called vaccines, um, I don't like to identify them as vaccines because like, 
they don't meet any of the properties of vaccines, but that's like a separate thing. And I need to stop calling them vaccines because I fall into that trap all the time. But um, it, it, the, the timeline of the creation and production of the vaccines and the investments into these companies, it's very strange. Like you have a guy like Bill Gates who in September of 2019, like two months before this is identified, he makes a $55 million um, pre IPO investment into BioNTech through his foundation. And the next thing you know, um, all this crazy stuff happens. Bill Gates gets like a 40X now on his BioNTech investment with his foundation. He was like popping money in all these mRNA factories. It, it seems that there, there, there has to have been some kind of um, someone was in the know or some institutions seem to have been in the know about this. And a lot of people got filthy rich off of the COVID mania era. Um, even like these uh, you know, Pfizer, Mo Moderna, there's a lot of really strange things that happened right in their onset um, when, when uh, the Chinese Communist Party, they published the gene sequence for the coronavirus. The supposed gene sequence never really been like they, they never really checked into that, but they started developing these vaccines for that gene sequence. Um, according to their own company timelines, they were developing vaccines immediately and had not known that anyone was going to be harmed by this disease or you know that anyone that this virus would be super contagious. It's just very strange that like all this money, all this capital was invested in these very early stages when it was just one of, you know, there were some news reports, but there was just one of a million viruses that all these people get sick with. Um, and there really has not been any thorough investigations into why all this capital was moving around so early. And I think there were some people that were absolutely in the know about, you know, whether uh, whatever narrative you want to believe about the origins of COVID, it seems that a lot of these major corporations and powerful people have not been honest from the very beginning about, you know, the, the origins of this thing, what exactly was going on. No, I mean, in, in regards to like Bill Gates' involvement, I'm pretty sure he's been on CNBC and like bragged about the multiples he made on that initial investment in, in biotech, whatever that company was called. And on top of that, Moderna, Whitney Webb's done some great reporting on Moderna. Moderna was like a Theranos-like company leading up to 2020. And this COVID vaccine miraculously saved them and produced a business model for them out of nowhere with some sketchy things going on at, at their board level and at, at their their um, executive suite, if you will. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the origin story too. That's like a big thing. You see Rand Paul and Fauci going back and forth over the last number of months uh, on Capitol Hill, and it seems pretty obvious that this uh, virus came from a lab uh, in which they were working on gain-of-function research that probably shouldn't be worked on if if you care about the uh, the health of humanity, right? Like so, and that and that's I don't know how you feel about this specifically, but I think that's that's where the signal is, is where was the origin? 
did it come like can we confirm that it came from Wuhan lab were they using gain of function if so like that is the smoking gun like we need to line up not line up and we need to like figure out everybody that was involved with this take them the task and and <laughs> reprimand them accordingly for onsetting this this shit show that's been the last two years but it seems like the corporate media and the narrative being pushed on the public from the political uh, media corporate class banking class whatever you want to call it the davos class uh, is uh, it's vaccinated versus unvaccinated like just think of this division line in this framework from which to argue and don't look over here about the origin story yeah it, it is like it's so ridiculous the way that the story is being reported. I don't know if if you are following the stuff recently where the, these pharmaceutical executives are claiming that, you know, they go on American television and claim that like, oh, yeah, this third shot, this one's the real winner. And then you have um, in the Middle East, in, in Turkey and Israel, they're on like shots four, shots five, still like, you know, they have these skyrocketing COVID cases and then like they roll out. Uh, Albert Bourla, you know, the veterinarian that run that is the uh, you know, front man for Pfizer. And he goes on CNN and he's like, yeah, you guys really need to get that booster. That's the one that's going to protect you. And it's like, all right, we already have the data. So what I, I really don't understand um, the I, I want to get into the mindset of these like hysterical people that are just like waiting at CVS to take their next booster shot and just unquestioningly obey all this authority it, it's just um it, it shows that there aren't as many free thinking people in the west as we thought they were um in fact the cold concept that we live in the free world i think is being questioned in real time it when a guy like you know uh, gavin newsom or andrew cuomo can just like sign a random executive order saying they have emergency powers forever. Um, it's just it's totally crazy. Um, the, this, the whole state of affairs over the last two years, um, I think it just like it, the, the urgency of the moment to get behind you know, Bitcoin and just the liberty movement in general, it, it's, it, it really shows that there is, um, that we are still i think our numbers are heading in the right direction and people that are becoming awake or based or red pilled or orange pilled or whatever you want to call it but there's still a lot of work to do i, I think that the, the masses surrounding us are, are very much just compliant cattle of the state um i don't know i don't you know i haven't done any um deep research into you know human psychology but it seems that like there's something very strange about the way that a lot of humans operate not strange but something repetitive and it results in bad times throughout history and i i can now see you know i, I grew up um i'm 32 i grew up in the 90s and 2000s and there was no um at least in the united states it was it was a conflict-free society. I mean, we we sent soldiers into Afghanistan and Iraq and all of Africa, um, but in terms of stateside, you know, we grew up in we we didn't have to worry about much uh, about you know, being invaded or anything like that. So having that historical perspective was very difficult, like to understand 
how the Soviet Union or how the Nazis rose to power and um, really uh, you know, wreaked total havoc upon uh, minority populations. But I don't know about you, now I really get how that happened. And once you introduce fear or, or some other element, it just seems that people are very quick to react and quick to turn against their neighbors if necessary. Um, it's just, but at least, I, you know, in America, I think we're, we're doing better. Uh, you know, you're in Texas, some in Florida. Our, our states are pretty free. Well, maybe not in Austin and Miami, but um, things are, I think, on the upswing around here. We're pretty free here in Austin, all things. Everybody warned me when I came down to Austin from the Northeast. Every Texan was like, oh, it's like... <laughs> Lib shithole, stay away. Texas. You're, you're going to be like, I come down here having lived in Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. I'm like, you, you guys don't know what a, what a, what a terribly run liberal city uh, actually looks like. But no, I mean, like you just mentioned, silver lining in this whole last two years has been the resurgence of autonomous states and states asserting their rights and competing for citizens uh, via their policies. That's why I'm in Texas. That's why I believe here in Florida, it's, it's very, it was very apparent to me that my values were not being represented in uh, New York or the Philadelphia area with all the lockdown stuff that was going on up there and all the, the, the vaccine shaming uh, and stuff like that, that, that is prevalent in those parts of the country. And not only that, they're getting more Orwellian, more like military state, like uh, as as time would go on, and then even before COVID, just the quality of the services in New York City, specifically where I was living at the time, were were diminishing pretty pretty rapidly. The the subway had a noticeable decline in, in quality of service between when I moved to New York in 2014 and when I eventually left in 2020. Um, yeah, it is this weird. Like, New York is wild now. Like yeah. I was just there a couple months ago and I took the subway. Um, and you know how the, the police don't enforce the people that hop, the, the, the gate ticket anymore. So people are just like hopping over the turnstiles. And I'm just like, am I a sucker for paying this fee right, right now? <laughs> like it's, and, and then, you know, the, I lived in New York um, a little earlier than you did, but like, I don't remember downtown New York city having like all this trash and all of these people like the, the homeless population has increased, I think dramatically, just like, it's just like not a nice place to live anymore. Even in the nicest areas of New York city, it's like really sketchy at, in places. And I don't remember it ever being that bad. It was, it was always trash ridden when I lived there. And it was my biggest pet peeve was how fucking dirty it was with trash just being on the street. And that was one thing like, uh, like loading up the trash bags on the side of the street. But yeah, no, when I did go back to move out of Williamsburg, actually, the Williamsburg was noticeably uh, like had trash all over the street. It wasn't just like on the sidewalk where, where the trash collectors would pick up trash. It was paper, plastic shit just strewn all throughout the streets. And then like you had the trash cans at the, um, the public trash cans on the corners, they were overfilled and looks like they hadn't been emptied in, in quite some time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a shame and it's interesting to see it. It's, it's held up New York specifically as this bastion of freedom and financial capital in the world. 
And like you mentioned, it is hard to claim that we live in a free country anymore. I mean, I say that all the time on this show, like, do we actually live in a free country? I don't think so. Um, there are free states. Again, that's the silver lining the last two years is states being like, all right, we need to um, get back towards the federalist system this country was founded on and the ideals that, that drove that inception. But I don't know, man. Like, that, And that's the other thing too, Like, which I think is very interesting for this particular conversation is, yes, there are a bunch of sheep. Yes, uh, authoritarianism is winning. But in terms of your comment on like, is history repeating itself? Like, are we doomed to have uh, a terrible decay like the Weimar Republic, ancient Rome, uh, any other society that's gone through a cultural degeneracy and a monetary collapse at the same time. And I wonder if what we're doing here with this podcast, what you're doing with the dossier, like we live in a time in the digital age where more people have more access to more information than ever before, uh, good information and bad information. So do you think with this indie journalists, uh, this independent journalism movement that we can sort of throw a wrench in the wheel of history repeating itself with these uh, sort of chaotic fractals by getting this good information out there uh, via these avenues that we have. I, I think nowadays, um, you know, as, as shitty as some of these big tech overlords are, there are alternative platforms that seem very committed to the idea of free speech. I think Substack, by the way, has a 100% record for maintaining the platforms of, I guess, legitimate creators. I mean, people might like create a Substack and say like crazy things and, uh, you know, launch profanity everywhere. And I think like, it's fine, you know, take that stuff down if you really want to, but uh, Substack's record on free speech, I think is, is perfect at this, at this time. So there are platforms that have stepped up the plate. Um, I, I know that there's a few others. So I, I think we've gotten to a point, um, and there's all these people that think like, you know, similar to the Bitcoin critique, they're like, oh, what if they shut down the internet and then they're gonna, you know, the, the tyrants are gonna take over and limit our speech again. But I think we're at a point where free speech or, or that there's enough people um, supporting free speech that it will be available on the internet. There are still a lot of fights to be had with the Twitters, Googles, Facebooks of the world. But I think, you know, I'm pretty optimistic that we have legit alternatives. Um, and I don't think I would have said that a few years ago um, in, in kind of the, the pre-substack or, or locals or, or some of these other Patreon-like platforms. But I, I think now, the information, like even with like Rumble or like some YouTube alternatives, and, and these places are far from perfect, but we have a way, uh, you know, just like on this podcast, to distribute the information that we want to, um, and it's not perfectly resistant to censorship, but it's pretty solidly resistant to censorship because of just like market incentives, and that there's still some good people out there. It kind of reminds me of. You know, I was reading about the uh, you know, early conversations on the Bitcoin message boards with uh, Satoshi himself. And they were kind of like talking about, okay, so when's the time when we're gonna like push Bitcoin really hard? And a lot of them seemed to agree early on that um, if, you know, if you go too hard on Bitcoin that you know, these big forces will probably just destroy early on. So you gotta kind of wait until 
you get to that point where the network's resilient enough to um, fight off attacks. And I think in this you know internet era of 2022 now, I think we're at a point and we can continue to, we definitely need better platforms, platforms that don't run on Amazon Web Services and that you know people need to be able to self-host easier. And I think Bitcoin plays a role there. But I think even with the systems that we're dealing with right now, uh, I'm very optimistic about you know, the, the flow of information heading in the right way. I am as well. It, 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 again, like we mentioned earlier, there's a thirst for these types of information providers out there. People are actively seeking them out, not only seeking them out, but more than willing to pay for the service of providing the market with a a perspective that is not being provided by the corporate media. And they're going to try and shut it down. That's the thing with Substack, which I've always been a bit wary of. Like if I think if I'm going to shift my, I'm going to shift my mail mailing uh, list and my newsletter off of MailChimp and just go straight ghost, like ghost being an open source CMS that has a newsletter um, capability and uh, does not use Amazon web servers and stuff like that. Like uh, that, to me, but then you know, Substack has the distribution. But it, again, I, th- I think my particular view on this is is irrelevant. Uh, I think it's great that to even have a view on the, the different options between the two, because, like you mentioned, there's there's just so many avenues that have popped up that are allowing people to make themselves as uncensorable as as they possibly can by being as robust and distributing amongst as many platforms as possible, but they're going to try and shut it down. We have a ministry of truth these days. Snopes. Snopes is here to tell you what's true and what's not. We got the fact checkers. We've got Reuters fact checking team, AP fact checking team. They're going to tell you what's true though. Like uh, when, when, what happens when we all get labeled as fake news and, and, and da- spreading dangerous misinformation like that, like you said, there's a fight coming and they're, they're posturing right now. Like they're trying to get Joe Rogan kicked off Spotify this week. Uh, they're going to come for you, for you and I too, at some point I would imagine. Yeah. It's interesting that, um, you know, I've been very frustrated with like this billion class billionaire class. And I think you were just posting about it. That's just like, they're, they're so in the tank for China and, and say what you want about Joe Rogan, but the dude, you know, he has F you money and he's actually using it to his advantage to say what he wants. And he knows that, like, worst case scenario, Spotify, um, I, I don't think in a million years that Spotify would cancel him because the, you can't just, like, it's 12 million downloads an episode. You know, they'd be insane to destroy their entire business. But even in this, in the case that they said, okay, Joe Rogan's canceled, then the next man up is just going to pick up Joe Rogan. And, and I wish that uh, more American entrepreneurs and um, you know, influencers and institutions, uh, once they've reached this level, that they would take the Joe Rogan approach. But it seems that a lot of our Western elites prefer to just accommodate the systems literally up until the day they die. Like they will just simp for China, for the Chinese Communist Party, because they have all their billions of dollars tied up there. And they just don't want to deal with the fallout from going after a big institution that is morally evil as hell. And it's 
like I don't know if you saw what's his name like Chamath or something that the West Coast um, yeah the, Chamath winner guy where he um, he put out a statement yesterday about why he was insensitive about the Uyghurs and he didn't really actually address it he just said I'm a I'm a refugee and you know we need to be more nuanced about these conversations in America and China but like it's that kind of thing that makes me like respect Joe Rogan because he's it's actually like there's there's like a myth out there that once you have fu money that like it makes you more independent but our billionaire class seems to just be more tethered to china than ever before yeah it's very weird and it's very scary so you had chamath come out yesterday saying like nobody cares about uyghurs like they're low they're below my uh level of of caring which is very tone deaf uh and again, I wrote about it in the podcast, or excuse me, in the newsletter last night. Like we're, we're finding ourselves, particularly the United States and China, as we become more intertwined and interconnected and interdependent on each other as as global economic juggernauts. Where Americans, who in this day and age, with woke culture and all the virtue signaling about climate change and uh, human rights and social justice and this and that. It, we're hitting a point where our dependence on China is so high uh, and we're LARPing and virtue signaling about all these things on the homeland and then our, our largest partner in economic trade is completely <laughs> acting uh, in, in uh, direct opposition to what uh, the values that we're trying to espouse here, or no, I don't, I, I, I do uh, agree with espousing the values, but like the, to the point where you're, you're virtue signaling and um, deriding others for not being perfectly uh, within your, your checkbox of, of what it takes to be woke. Uh, you're using an iPhone, you're uh, using solar panels that were uh, made with polysilicon that was <laughs> placed via the hands of, of Uyghur Muslim slaves. Uh, and, and just having to be confronted with that uh, as an American populace is is very uh, makes people very uncomfortable because he, he holds up a mirror and says, uh, "I'm a hypocrite." And there's a shit ton of hypoc hypocritical mm -hmm. posturing in the United States right now, which infuriates me. And is what I write a lot about. It, it's kind of fun to watch, you know. And like Jack Dorsey was going on that like two week. Twitter rant against the VCs in Silicon Valley. And they were like all his all his, I guess, previous friends now. And he's like, nah, you're just a bunch of shit pointers that are going that are just trying to turn like poor people into bag holders, essentially. And sometimes like it's just I I enjoy seeing you know, this is why as much as people hate Twitter, the, the best part of Twitter is that you can like you can just like go to some random billionaire and you can just say in the replies or quote teat or whatever. Like you're a hypocrite scumbag and you are a net negative to humanity. And then like whatever you want to post as like a link or evidence, the idea that like it's just so democratized to that level makes, I think, Twitter like a fascinating space. Um, and I hope I don't get banned from it. But, you know, I, I think my days might be numbered there. But it, it, it's very cool, you know, to have like products like these. And I, and I think that uh, you it's possible for sure that a lot of things on Bitcoin are going to be, um, you know, involved in the social media space. But I think that's like, it's an underrated feature that a lot, when a lot of people are trying to start these new technology companies, 
Um, I think a lot of the reasons why it fails is because like there's so many of these like bootleg Twitter, bootleg Instagram, bootleg YouTube, and like they don't understand that like the fun appeal is to like get into the conversation itself, not just um, to like get into your own echo chambers. To actually you know have these billionaires that come on and like virtue signal about ESG and um, you know their their wokeness or whatever. And then having to face like a fundamental challenge in an open market, that's like the most ideal platform ever for me. So it's going to be, I think it's actually going to be very difficult to see. Uh, I don't know if there'll ever be like a Twitter alternative. Maybe there'll be something that, um, you know, is totally in another field that becomes a better social media platform. But uh, I have to give props to, to Jack Dorsey for creating this magnificent thing. And I think it will eventually destroy itself, but we can at least enjoy it while it's still around. I plan on enjoying it for as long as I can. <laughs> Who knows how long I'll be on there as well. But Twitter, Rog, if you're watching, just just go back to right before you deplatform Milo and Alex Jones and revert Twitter to that, and just let it just let it go. Don't worry about like Jordan just mentioned. That's the best part about it, is being able to enter the fray of a conversation have obviously there's a lot of vitriol, but there is, uh, I think Twitter provides uh, the most signal out of any social network because it allows you to engage if you want to. A lot of people don't want to engage in this type of conversation, but meritocratic, Socratic conversations about particular ideas where you go back and forth and people can see that conversation and that line of thinking. That is incredibly valued. Sometimes it gets uh, offensive to some, but uh, I I don't think you should throw the baby out with the bathwater by completely neutering your platform, which uh, it seems to be the the path that, that you're deciding to go on. Um, yeah, they, they have the block button for a reason, you know, just, just use it, you know, <laughs> so I, I use it pretty liberally. I don't under, I don't understand this whole thing about like, oh, we need to protect people's feelings. Um, it just, it's, it's like Twitter's like main reason for deplatforming people. If you really think that all these people are spreading all this awful information, you can just block them. And, and that's, that should have been the end of it. That would have been it. Um, you're, you're right. I think that's the perfect place. Just go back a few years. Um, imagine having Alex Jones and even Donald Trump on Twitter in this time. I think their their market cap would have hit like two trillion dollars by now. But um, yeah, it, it seems that they. Yeah, I don't. I, I think one of the big problems with Twitter is that there's like the the class of people that run it all have like this extreme ideological perspective that clashes with Twitter's foundations. So they're just kind of like dealing with that. And I, I hope that Twitter is around, but it seems that like now that Jack left, you have all these like shit coiners that are running the show with their own moral philosophy and their own like warped perspective on freedom itself. Um, and it, it's, it's tough to see them continue to let their own side get beat in the in in the conversation moving forward like they it is it is an incentive now for them to deplatform people who are challenging the narrative because all of their employees and um you know high profile people now believe in that narrative so it's kind of like it's a real test of how much are they willing to take before they have to like you know do their own so-called great reset and just like deplatform all of us so they can 
win the conversation again, because I don't think that they're winning on a lot of these issues that we talk about. No, they're not winning at all. They're, again, like you said, trying to force their political view on the rest of Twitter and going back to like the billionaires and their posturing towards China. Like, I think it's a, a product of that a little bit as well is these tech giants um, have a lot of external influence um, from foreign entities. I, I know Saudi Arabia has an, a, a big stake in, in Twitter. I'm sure there's some some Chinese entities that do as well. But that's the scariest thing about like the Chamas of the world coming out and um, basically doing a roundabout uh, pitter-patter around the Uyghur thing, which seems to just be like, hey, we're going to be doing big business in China. We're going to be investing in China. There's going to be a lot of growth in China. Like, didn't say it outright, but in one way or another, basically said, let's overlook the weaker stuff because there's going to be a lot of economic growth for the United States via uh, development with China. Ray Dalio came out uh, about a month ago, I believe, and he was espousing that the, the United States should um, should try to emulate the Chinese Communist Party and their their equality, uh, prosperity, equality of prosperity line of thinking and ideal that they have. So you have another billionaire actively supporting the CCP and the policies that they've implemented, uh, completely glossing over the trade-offs, the human rights trade-offs that allowed to create uh, the conditions to create that that uh, equality of prosperity, which is nothing more than a facade. Uh, and so you have this class of institutional investor, particularly in people like Ray Dalio and Chamath, that see China and its market as a potential 40, 50, 100x in their investment capital, because uh, obviously there's more potential growth there and interconnectedness between China and the rest of the global economy. And y you have these people who are highly regarded and highly respected by the American public working actively against American ideals of freedom, mm -hmm. freedom of speech, freedom of private property, sound money, um, all this stuff. It, it is weird that they, I think they would like uh, the Chinese economy to, to come to America. Uh, like a lot of people in that class want the Chinese social credit score system and all that to come here. And they're, they're actively supporting it because they think it'll pump their bags, which is disgusting. And like I wrote about last night, like it's time to have a conversation about this as American consumers, we are culpable of this as well. I have an iPhone here, I have an, mm -hmm. uh, a MacBook over there. Like I am uh, leveraging products that leverage these, uh, these human rights violations and stuff like that. So, uh, it's it's a like, we we get two things right in my view you get the Chinese social credit score and their economy exported to the rest of the world or you get a free market economy with Bitcoin and and open content distribution being a heavy base uh, of of that world. Yeah, I was listening to um, Ray Dalio on a podcast. I think that was recorded a couple weeks ago. Um, and it was just incredible, the, uh, the chutzpah that this guy had. I think you make a good point about people really hate having a mirror held up to them. Well, especially, you know, these, these hypocrites that preach one thing and do another. And, and Ray Dalio seems to be such a shill for the Chinese regime. It's like embarrassing. Um, and it really was 
infuriating to hear the way he discussed American politics because he's all about, you know, oh, you know, we have too much of a polarizing society, he was saying, and that that the problem is that the America is now two extremes, the left and the right, we need to come together, you know, all this like bumper sticker bullshit. (laughs) And then he pivots to the Chinese Communist Party and he's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, it's not perfect, but there's things we can learn. I used to go to China and give them calculators and they were so thankful to me. I mean, this guy is so in the tank for the Chinese regime. It's embarrassing. And then he, he ended some his segment on, on the podcast. I think he was saying like, oh, I'm not one to be known to be politically um, correct. You know, I'm only telling you the facts of the matter. And this is a guy who is unwilling to even remotely critique the Chinese Communist Party, but is, you know, goes as far as to say, that the, that the problem in the United States is that you know the the environment is too um, you know it's too political and what he is really saying there is oh maybe we should just have a one party system like my my uh, my masters in China who are holding on to my money for me you know it, it's just like I I cannot believe the 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 lack of self awareness that these people have that they don't think that people see through these ideas. And sadly, you know, they convince a lot of people that, oh, in order to be like a really successful billionaire, you too need to sell out to the Chinese regime. And I think, sadly, um, some of that is true in today's economy. Like the incentives are set up to where, you know, as kind of talking about earlier, you need to play that game and you need to not piss off any of these power players and then you can become a part of the system. But that shouldn't be how a free market operates. And, you know, the idea that we are living in a free market today is just, uh, you know, laughable. I don't know if you saw there was this, um, there's kind of like this map of Chinese uh, government influence that's going around um, on the economic side. And it shows like that only 20 years ago, China was like the dominant market in a handful of countries. And now the Chinese uh, Communist Party is just like totally influential throughout the entirety of the world. And that most countries um, are trading with a uh, you know, majority uh, of their trades are being sent uh, back and forth with the Chinese government. So it, it's pretty shocking to see the, um, you know, how China's momentum is going as opposed to, um, you know, the, the economy in the United States. And I think a lot of it is also you know, a, a manpower issue that you know, there's, there's well over a billion people in China and, um, you know, their, their one-party system remains very committed to growing the power of the state and the reach of the state. Um, and I don't think that's a good thing because, of, you know, it's, it's an evil state enterprise. But in the United States, you know, we just have, like, all this, like, weird, stupid, uh, you know, corporatism going on and just, like, our companies um, that should, you know, be holds into some you know american founding principles are just like selling out to the chinese regime instantly yeah the nba with daryl morey making comments about the hong kong protest in 2019 he got he got shut up real quick by lebron and adam silver and obviously china is a massive potential addressable market for the nba there's going to be a lot of merch sales there there's going to be a lot of syndication deals there. there's going to be a lot of they'll probably start playing games there and stuff like that and they were willing to throw hong kong protesters under the bus uh, to protect that potential 
profit, future profit, uh, because they wanted the, the pipelines of economic activity open with China. They were willing to cede uh, principles, freedom. I mean, and then literally it, that happened. That happened in October. And the protests were, were r- raging throughout the end of the year. Then COVID hit and everybody forgot. And guess what? what? They took down the Tiananmen Square statue in Hong Kong like three weeks ago. And there's no free press in Hong Kong. And any dissident is being, being disappeared. Uh, and the NBA is still very good partners with, with the Chinese Communist Party and, and the Chinese economy. And it's... It is getting yeah, to an yeah, awkward point. Up, like, like, what do we want to do? Are we going to just become China and, and uh, live by their ideals and their, their one-party economy moving forward? Or, or are we going to have some fucking balls and stand up and, and, and say, hey, no, I believe in freedom and I'm not going to support a, a, a regime that is, that is actively uh, expanding its empire to, to trample out freedom wherever it, wherever it walks. Yeah, I think on the positive side, it, it's so huge that China has decided, you know, that they like pretend banned Bitcoin mining for like a decade. And then they finally seem to have actually um, worried people enough to where all of the hash power, well, not all of it, but a significant amount shut, shut off and left. And I think that's like, a, that's a great sign for the, the cause of freedom is that, you know, it kind of solves this, this big critique you know, that the shitcoiners have that, you know, Bitcoin is controlled by China, yada, yada, yada. And now it's like, okay, so now the Chinese government really does not want um, to get involved in the Bitcoin space um, because it, it seems that, you know, they're, they definitely prioritize the, the central authority in the state and that I don't know if they're, if they have people at the top of the Communist Party that realize that Bitcoin presents a threat to their model, a significant threat to their model, but it's good that they don't like Bitcoin. But it was definitely, I think for them, for their staying power, it was a huge strategic error to let all of these miners pack up and go and even incentivize them to go. It's just, I think that will be paying dividends for probably the rest of this decade for the cause of freedom you know, as, as the Bitcoin network continues to grow and as its monetary value increases. But it, for me, that's just, it's like one of the unwritten stories of, of Bitcoin right now, um, that it's just, it, it's so huge that all this hash powers, especially like moving into the United States with all these companies, I think that's, that's great stuff. And, you know, I look forward to seeing what we can do with this, you know, newly democratized um, industry. Yeah, such a fumble. Like not only did they kick the hash rate out, if they really understood the power that Bitcoin enables individuals to wield, and that is the last thing you want in a authoritarian regime is uh, the ability of individuals to skirt your surveillance system and, and operate outside of it, which Bitcoin allows. Like they should have, if the like the do they do they have people in the CCB that understand the gravity of Bitcoin? It doesn't seem as if they do, because they banned it and they let the ASICs get out of the, the country. Like if they were smart, they would have confiscated the, the ASICs at the border, plugged them all in and, and like just consistently 51% attack the network because they probably would have easily been able to with all the hash rate that was leaving. Uh, but again, then that gets into the, 
the actual like legitimacy like is it like is are all the a lot of the problems in the world driven by malice or incompetence and it seems like a lot of people high up uh, in these political parties whether it be in America or China are are somewhat incompetent to to not even realize what they're allowing like if bitcoin succeeds and percolates back into the chinese economy that is probably one of the biggest dangers that could ever be presented to the the, the communist party you know, people can't be shut out of their their Weibo account and, and have their social credit diminished and their access to money cut off uh, if they just have a free and open source Bitcoin wallet that they can broadcast transactions to uh, the rest of the world with. Um, will be looked at as the biggest blunder uh, China's made. And it's funny because I don't know if you've heard this adage, but like something like every 500 years, China is always close to becoming like a superpower, but they fumble it some some way, mm -hmm. somehow. This Bitcoin ban may be, may be that way this time around, if that adage is true. But yeah, they're, uh, like you said, it was the most underappreciated story of 2021 in the Bitcoin world. Uh, eh, I mean, it was pretty appreciated, but like I don't think still even many Bitcoiners understand the gravity of that stress test that the network went through and the... Um, subsequent distribution of hash rate and what that will do to make the network as resilient as possible moving forward. It's very bullish. Yeah, I think I think the turnover times having that, um, you know, even though I understand that Bitcoin is for everyone, I think just having that economic power to potentially distributed right away to better people for me that was like a win-win in the short term and in the long term. It'll kind of like I think all like. Can even itself out, but um, you know, I, I just I, I'm thrilled with all of these companies that seem to be wanting to get into business. Like, especially I know that um, Taiwan Semiconductor, right? They're doing massive work in Texas, like multi-billion-dollar. Um, I think they're setting up some foundries there, right? And um, it, it's interesting that uh, I think. Intel is also in you know, setting up in the United States, so I think there's there's an appeal in the Bitcoin space that some people, that these big companies actually recognize that China is not a hospitable environment if you want to get into Bitcoin. And I think that's great. You know, it's like the one industry right now where, where people are very hesitant to do business with the Chinese regime. Well, I hope, well, that's the thing too. Everybody's flooding America, but I just like again, like our billionaire class, our political class, they seem dead set on adopting the Chinese economic way of life. Like they want to, they want to implement MMT, they want to eliminate cash, and their vaccine passport. Many could argue is the first step towards a social credit system that's tied to your identity. That is the great fight we're we're uh, embarked in a cold war right now as individuals yeah. who believe they live in a free country against not only our political class but the chinese government russian government all these large governments the, the free and sovereign individual in the united states is engaged in the cold war right now i hope you freaks understand that who are listening to this we are at war here we're in the middle of it and your actions will dictate how humanity lives in the future will, will they live free our ancestors or descendants live free or will um, they all be sucked into a digital panopticon um, is there's this um there's this big war of ideas going on between um i think there's a lot of people that are deliberately 
kind of like sowing chaos on in the CBDC versus Bitcoin argument. Because I see it a lot, um, although I, I publicly talk about Bitcoin quite a bit, I think most of my core following are people who generally believe in free markets. They aren't sure about Bitcoin and they get confused a lot when you, know, you talk about Bitcoin as a network that is digital they think, oh, you know, this must be like that digital currency and this is like some Chinese plot. So I think like one of the big hurdles to continue to like rapid adoption of the Bitcoin network is to kind of like get over this problem with like the best possible forms of education. Um, you know, to his great credit, I think Michael Saylor is trying to tap into that you know, boomer market. <laughs> but... There's definitely something going on there. You know, I don't have the um, all the answers because I am not well technically well enough versed to you know split the baby there and completely explain all the fundamentals to make people comfortable and make it like relatable in the way that like you know Elon Musk can talk about freaking rocket propulsion to an eight year old. But I think we need to like find a way to get there to make sure that people like they, they shouldn't be concerned that Bitcoin is going to become like part of this like social credit score system. I think that's like, that's the one thing that, especially you know, like on, on Twitter and other social media avenues, the quickest response I'll always get to like something about Bitcoin is, oh, you know, this is a, well, it used to be, you know, this is like a Chinese scam but but now uh, one of the the critiques that i keep seeing over and over again is oh you're you're a fool you know i have my gold bars buried in my backyard and the, you know they're going to turn off the internet and they're going to use uh, you know the, this is like a cbdc so there's just like all, all this like garbage noise floating around there and it, it's genuinely confusing people so i hope that there's a way to get over that hump you didn't know satoshi nakamoto was an nsa agent that's another one. I thought it was CIA. CIA, yeah. NSA. <laughs> Came out of the NSA, according to a lot of people. That uh, What's her name? Catherine um, Watson. She's been doing like good Davos class journalism, calling out like the World Economic Forum and all that. She thinks Bitcoin's um, fits. Catherine fits. She thinks Bitcoin's an, an NSA operation. Um, well, even if it was, and you understand how Bitcoin works, like, Okay, you know, I guess the NSA found a Bitcoin, but it's still great. You know, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't make a difference when you understand that how Bitcoin works, right? Because, so. Yeah, you can literally audit the code and see if there's any backdoors. There's there haven't been any found yet, Catherine, and others who think it's an NSA ploy to throw us into uh, the digital panopticon, the social credit scoring, the CBDC. This is Bitcoin is the opposite of the CBDC, which they want. They want They want it bad. I mean, you have Jerome Powell talking about it. You have the ECB talking about it. China's talking about it. Uh, Turkey just entered the fray, but they're scrambling for answers there as they completely destroy their currency. Are and, you surprised by the resiliency of the dollar as compared to these other fiat currencies? Or do you think this is just like a natural thing with these like medium-sized state currencies kind of failing. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's not surprised at all. I mean, that uh, the dollar is the, the top piece of shit on the pile. It, it is the prettiest, cleanest. Uh, and what you 
we'll typically see is you have Thier's Law come into play, which is um, good money will drive out bad. And that means Bitcoin will drive out all these bad currencies. But before that happens, all the bad currencies will like fold into each other. So you'll have the Venezuelan, um, the, um, it's escaping me. What is it? the Bolivar fail? Then you'll have the Argentinian peso fail, you have Turkey, Turkish lira fail, Lebanese currency fail, and they'll all fail into the US dollar. US dollar will be the last to fall because of its relative strength against all the other currencies, which is driven by the demand for dollars, which is driven mainly by the petrodollar system. Um, that is being questioned, though. People are beginning to. Uh, settle oil trades internationally in, in their native currencies, uh, India and Russia, uh, or I believe it was Iran and Russia, uh, most recently have an agreement to pay in real and, and rupees, um, not rupees. Um, uh, what is what is the Russian currency now? Uh, ruble? The ruble, the ruble and uh, uh, the Iranian real. Um, it's interesting because they're like these kind of like anti-US countries, um, they are positioning themselves against the dollar, but not yet adopting Bitcoin. So they're kind of just like fucking themselves over in the meantime. You know, they're, they're just like doubling down on their shitty currency that no one wants to use or that is like heavily sanctioned, sadly. So they're just like putting themselves in a worse position, it seems. Well, China and Russia are hoarding gold like crazy. So I think they do... Yeah. Those two countries specifically recognize that the need for a harder currency if they want to transition their economies away from the U.S. dollar, which they seem to be doing. But again, yeah, they want to get that gold and probably, I would imagine, create like a new quasi-gold standard on the, the ruble and the yuan are are tied to. But yeah, they're uh, they're doing they're getting the wrong hard asset. I would argue. And who's to say? I wouldn't be surprised if. Uh, people within Putin's regime and Xi's regime have Bitcoin, but I don't know if it would actually be on behalf of, of Russia and China, the states, and, and not for themselves. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, but yeah, we're again we're at a very pivotal point in human history, and that's what I think people need to realize. Even as uh, an American, like we do, like to think of ourselves as the the country that loves freedom and is going to espouse that freedom and bring it to the rest of the world. I think the last two and a half decades have proven that that isn't the case. We're not very free. We're not really spreading freedom or spreading uh, <laughs> misery, I would argue, in a lot of instances. Um, but again, is this, this is the individual versus the state we're in right now, whether it's the United States, the Russian state, the Chinese state, the Iran and Venezuela and Argentinian. Uh, he... People in power want to keep that power and they're rushing and scrambling to create the mechanisms that will allow them to hold that power in the digital age. The Probably the strongest tool to be able to leverage that power would be a digital currency that is tightly controlled by these governments. And they're all going to try and create their own um, and they're all corrosive to the rights of the individual at the end of the day. Yeah, I think with... Um with the military firepower that these nation states possess, they can kind of like blackmail their way into 
staying power for their regimes much longer than we'd like them to have. So it should be interesting to see, you know, in in the coming decades, how exactly this plays out. Because I, I think, you know, if this thing goes the way it goes, it'll fundamental fundamentally restructure, you know, the Westphalian system that has been around for 400 years. So it, it's um, you know, the, the whole idea of like nation states and all of these theories surrounding how nation states interact with each other. And then you just have like, you know, the hardest money in human history comes around and might present a total change to all of that structure. Um, I think in every avenue in all of our, you know, related fields and expertises and knowledge bases, we're going to have to accommodate this idea as like, what is Bitcoin going to do to my industry? And it's going to be very, especially like, you know, we, we just live in such fascinating times, like as crazy as like this COVID mania nonsense is, you know, that's why I'm still like very optimistic about the future, even though you have this like stupid politicians running the show right now. And I, I hope it's not for long. God, I hope it's not for long. I'm optimistic as well, but yeah, it's like, how do we shed ourselves of this literal reptilian entities that run like the Nancy Pelosi's, the Joe Biden's, Mitch McConnell's, all these LARPers. Again, that's the thing, like here in America specifically, everybody has red versus blue, like you you fight that fight and they don't realize it's the individual versus the state, like red, blue, purple, libertarian, whatever, like the federal government in its current form only knows how to uh, acquire more power <laughs> over the individual. And here in the United States, I think we need more individuals. I think yourself, myself, a lot of people listening to this podcast are tuned into this. And it's just like, how do we shake the the, the sheeple who are on, on their fourth booster shot um, out of the, the morass of the, the control that comes via the, the the narrative framing put forth by the blue team versus red team. Uh, that's just like a random rant there. I'm, now I'm getting, now I'm getting frustrated. No, I, I get it. Um, my, my perspective on this has changed a lot. Um, and, and I think like in the meantime, I, I think people in states and areas that are free should just focus on like not this national horse race because it's just going to be totally irrelevant to their lives. And, you know, I very much realize this living in Florida, like there's always this conversation in, in Florida among us right wingers about like, okay, you know, we're, we're big fans of the governor, but like, do we want him to enter the DC horse race or do we want him just to like expand the, you know, and like continue to decentralize and individualize the power of Floridians. And it just seems that like the better play now is to us in free areas to like keep our heads down, accumulate people that will empower us. And, you know, the idea that like, you know, someone's going to go to DC and, and change American society is just like kind of like laughable to me at, at, this, at this point. I just I just don't see it happening, unfortunately. And I know that might like piss a lot of people off and like, oh, you know, we're just one president away from <laughs> throwing this thing, <laughs> you know, reversing this thing. But people need to remember that like Donald Trump is not was not um, the way the media presented him. He wasn't some kind of radical who very much like accommodated these institutions, but they still didn't really like him very much because he spoke out against them. 
And you literally had like the FBI try to wage like a soft coup the, the second he entered office. You, you think that like they're going to these bureaucratic institutions that continue to grow and grow and grow? You think they're going to really let like some firebrand in there and like delete them, <laughs> delete all of the power that they've accumulated? So it, I think it just needs to happen from from the outside. And that people in free areas should just focus on making sure their area stays free and just like empowering their communities. Um, I think too many people are caught up in this. Uh, I just like enjoy mocking the people in DC, like the, the ridiculous like cadaver president we have right now. It's just so absurd and like has the markings of late Republic all over it. But oh my gosh, dude! We're not gonna we're not gonna go in uh, with like some like the, the next Ron Paul is not going to like come out of nowhere and just like remove all of these massive institutions from power in Washington, D.C. I just don't see that model working anymore. No, it's not going to happen. And it's never worked throughout history. JFK yeah. got his head blown off for yeah. uh, for <laughs> trying to uh, destroy the CIA. Like these, these entrenched alphabet soup agencies have a lot of power and they're not going to let go of it. And like you said, turning inward at a local level is probably the most effective way. And like nothing's ever going to get solved at the federal level. Like I just said, like the only thing the federal government knows how to do at this point is just consolidate more power and restrict more freedoms. And then they try to, and again, this comes back to like a complex system argument as well. You had DC is a very centralized entity trying to make top-down decisions for a country of 360 million people. Like they are, Literally, the people making the decisions in this city on the East Coast of the United States are so far removed from the information sources that are being fed into the uh, conversations that are leading to decisions that are being made that it, it's not scalable. It doesn't make any sense. These people can't solve the problems at the local level from the federal level. Like They're too far away from the information. The people making decisions don't understand the information or most likely not even getting all of it in the first place. And to think that hey, we're just going to get a new boss. He's going to fix all this for us. It's like, wake up. Like, it's not going to happen. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. doesn't matter if it was Bush 1, Clinton, Bush 2, Obama, Trump, Biden. It's all the same. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. They are not going to fix our problems. And that's the other thing. We've gotten fat, lazy. There's not a lot of sense of it, it, like, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to think critically. I'm going to get the first principles. I'm going to pull myself up from my bootstraps anymore. It's like, uh, who can fix my problem for me? Like, yeah. I don't want to think about this. Like the black square is the perfect embodiment of that mentality. Like, Hey, I'm just going to post this black square on, um, on Instagram and I'm abolished, uh, admonished of, of any, uh, claim that somebody can call me racist or something like that. I'm for the cause. Well, Chamath is a refugee, so he doesn't need to talk about the Uyghurs. <laughs> but um, yeah, like a lot of people talk about um, this idea of like national divorce or states becoming more independent or autonomous. And the like the Fed counter argument from the people that like support the idea of you know defending the American regime is that oh, what happens when the military comes into Florida and start, you know, like shooting guys and like, all right, calm down. We're going to take this day, day by day. The idea that we need to like solve all of our problems in one day is ridiculous. And because we live in like this post-constitutional, post-rule-of-law era, 
I don't see why people can't come up with more flexible ideas about sovereignty. Um, so many people that I interact with are mistaken with this idea that they need to like fight for this regime that hates us, like genuinely hates us, despises us, wishes that um, Bitcoin didn't exist, wishes that we didn't have the ability to speak freely. Like you think these people are really looking out for our interests? These people should be ignored and mocked. Um, I don't think that anyone has any right to say that we have like, we owe something to the regime that is um, ruling the country right now. Um, people, there needs to be a separation between, you know, these super important American founding principles, um, the idea of unalienable rights, individual rights and freedoms, super important. Um, I support that, but there's a separation between that and the current American system, which doesn't really support any of that. No. I mean, you had Anthony Fauci keynote speaking with President Xi from China at a World Economic Forum event earlier this week. It gets the commingling of the regime at all levels across all countries is very, very frightening. Like the connection of the World Health Organization with the CDC, with the NIH, with NIAID, Chinese Communist Party, like all that inter, like it's all the same regime globally. That's what I'm starting to believe. It's like, it's all the Davos class versus the individual uh, is, is where I'm starting to go. And the Davos class is infiltrated not only large corporations and the media, but politics as well. And that's why I think meet the new boss, same as the old boss will always be the same at the federal government level here in the U S you're, you're, you're playing a losing game if you even engage in it in the first place. Yeah. I think there's, um, there's, there's like two different bubbles on that global level. There's like, you know, the group that you need to be a part of, and then there's that competition within that group. So, for instance, like in these vaccine wars, you have this U.S. cartel, which has these mRNA shots. And then China has its own cartel of um, like inactivated virus that they're giving to other people. So there's like collaborative efforts to kind of like create these these like areas of influence. But you still need to break into that circle of global trust first and then you can compete among you know your group but it, it the but it, it's very interesting how it's structured in a way where you you can't just just get in there you know you, there's a kind of like two levels so fauci is like a shill for this u.s pharma cartel and then g is pushing his like you know homemade sinopharm shots but these the Davos crowd, they still get along very well. You know, they, they understand that like we can compete amongst ourselves, but there's like these outsiders out here. We cannot allow them to infiltrate our our competition and you know, put all of our uh, you know causes in jeopardy. Yeah, don't let them spread misinformation. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It's crazy. What's going? What do you? How do you think this? Last two years gets looked at in retrospect in like 2025, 2027. Do you think mm -hmm. it's going to become apparent that there is a lot of corporate greed and fuckery going, around, going on in the background, maybe even some nefarious intent to 
uh, induce a, a cattle herding into a central bank digital currency social credit co- scoring system? How, how do you think this plays out? Because I think they rushed a lot of what they were trying to do, the Davos crowd specifically. Uh, they fumbled pretty terribly. Uh, it's becoming very apparent that the, the vaccines are not working as advertised um, originally, which was you'll be completely protected. You're unable to get the virus, uh, get sick from it and or die from it. And uh, it's becoming very apparent that none of that is true. Like, do you think the public wakes up? Do you think we continue going down the road of, of pulling the wool over our own eyes and putting our fingers in our ears as a, as a collective society here in the United States and, and believe what the regime is saying? Or do you think that people are beginning to, to recognize that the emperor is, is pretty naked under there? Mm, I, I think it can go either way right now, but, but you're right. They, they pushed really hard on this issue and they're starting to see some blowback. So they're definitely a little worried um, as you you've covered the, uh, you know, the so-called climate emergency. I, I know you talk about that a lot on social media and on your show. And that hasn't really ever stuck. And the COVID mania stuff really stuck. But it seems that it is having an expiration date, hopefully by the end of the year. Um, and hopefully, you know, all these pharma companies will lose power because these market forces will not work in their favor if they don't have a product that people have bought into anymore. But it, of course, can go the other way. I mean, if the past two years have showed me anything, it's that um, I will will not be surprised anymore by uh, human behavior in a authoritarian direction. And we'll see. You know, the, the Iraq war took like a decade for people to really see the bigger picture of what was going on there. Um, it had the support, I think, of a lot of the country for several years. So if you were to compare it to the Iraq war, then yeah, maybe by like 2025, 2026, <laughs> a lot of people will start to see the reality of what has happened. But yeah, like it might take a while. Um, it really depends on how these like corporate institutions are going to deal with this vaccine failure. The, you know, the idea that all of these shots were um, authorized to prevent COVID. I mean, it's right on the information sheets. It's right on you know, all the meetings they had with the FDA and CDC. And the fact that like all these numbers are headed, you know, there's all these new records and everything. So they're trying to change a narrative so much. But I think eventually they'll be held, they're going to be held to account for this. And the, the corporate press and you know the, the global elite can go one way they can just like kind of like throw them under the bus where they can continue to empower these people but if they throw them under the bus i think that you're right that they're going to try some other type of emergency and you know they still want this cbdc system and covid mania was a great way to try to um enforce this upon the masses but it seems that it's like kind of running out of energy and the climate move is not the right move so I guess we'll see what they come up with next, right? Uh, they've got a beautiful shit show on their hands with this ending terribly. Because, they again, they postured, and they have been posturing. Klaus Schwab has been coming out and saying, next, we're going to take on the climate. And the ESG narrative is just crumbling beautifully in front of the world's eyes as the policies 
that get prioritized under an ESG mandate are proven to uh, leave people with less reliable and more expensive grids, which hurts the poor the most. And again, holding a mirror up to these hypocrites, like you actually don't care about poor people, downtrodden people. You're making their lives worse off with these climate policies, particularly around energy. Uh, and there is no climate crisis, freaks. They've been trying to scare you at the climate crisis for, for decades. It was an ice age in the 70s. It was the ozone layer in the 80s, acid rain in the 90s. And it's been, uh, the, the oceans are going to boil in the first two decades of this century. And if you look at all the data, if you look at all the models, particularly people look at models and they, they, they make rash decisions. We learned that very uh, aggressively with the COVID stuff. People looked at the, uh, the models out of the UK and shut down the global economy. They proved not to be true. It's very similar with the, the climate alarmism as well. Their, their models are using, uh, they're not very accurate when, when you compare them to, to actual data in the real world. Don't let them transition to a climate crisis. They want to create climate lockdowns. They want to ration your ability to access energy. They want to ration your ability to access oil and gas. Do not let them. Energy production and proliferation is essential for human flourishing. And they're trying to take that away from you. And it's weird. As I say this, like I'm just like worried in the back of my head, is YouTube going to fucking kick me off? Uh, give me a strike for saying these things. Like, are, are these crazy to say? Is, is it controversial to say that energy is a good thing these days and the, the planet's not going to destroy itself? We're not going to become inhabitable because we're leveraging energy? No, I don't, I don't think that... Um, it, it, I, I wish that... Um, Alex Epstein has done... I don't know if he's been on your show, but he's done a lot he of has, work on yeah. the, you know, like the moral arguments for this and how they're so kind of like perverted in all kinds of ways um, to the point where like the idea that um, you know that you're using fossil fuels is now universally considered evil when if you actually look at the data and like the discovery recent discoveries of fossil fuels it's like it's totally seemingly irrelevant to like the whole moral conversation because we have so much um energy resources out there or potential energy resources out there that, that it's like it's not an issue for several generations to you know end up dealing with and then like you you talk about these wind farms and it's just like unbelievable if you go down the rabbit hole of these wind farms they're just like so toxic and destructive to the actual environment and you know half the time they're not even working and um, it, it's just like it, it's like one scam on top of another scam on top of a third scam and then like ESG just like slap the sticker on all those scams. So if you're ESG compliant, um, it, this, th there were a lot of parallels in, in the COVID times that are still ongoing is that there's been like a lot of these pop-up industries that um, have to do with like making sure you were, when they were big on social distancing, it was like, you can get like these private companies to put a sticker on your business. It says like, you're social distancing compatible and um, the, when the sanitation stuff was hitting hard, <laughs> there were, you know, all kinds of like these chemicals being used to say you were sanitary. So this is like all these like bullshit industries that are popping up from people being um, under this like psychosis. Um, but I'm still not convinced, like, because, you know, they've been trying the climate thing um, for like so many decades now, and they just haven't found a way for it to like stick on people. 
you know, the COVID is really sticking on people. It's like, you know, I'm sure you have members of your own family and friends, legitimate friends of yours that are like terrified of COVID and that are like walking around with, everyone knows people that are close to them. They like walk around everywhere with, with this ridiculous mask on or maybe a double mask or maybe an N95 now because, you know, the CDC said so. So I don't ever recall like a parallel like there's a lot of virtue signaling on the climate front. Like there's a lot of people that like, you know, will will be big on the whole, um, you know, like vegan uh, composting, soy, all this. Like, you know, they'll they'll put like garbage in their bodies to feel like that they're saving the world. But it, it seems like on a societal level, um, the powers that be are still looking for that emergency. So maybe they'll like do something horrific and. And, you know, similar to the alleged lab leak situation, maybe they'll like release some type of, God forbid, some type of like bio catastrophe on some region. And then they'll tell us that this is why climate change is so important. Yeah. Turn off your stove. They can geoengineer the the weather. It's possible. Ah, God. It's people, man. How do we combat these people? That's what I want to talk to you. Uh, about too because you mentioned earlier ridicule that's one thing I don't think people realize like uh, to sort of pierce through and get to the average Joe who may be asleep at the wheel and not understanding he's being manipulated I think <clears throat> you do this well on Twitter and in your newsletter uh, ridicule like, like making fun of these hypocritical uh Kleptocrats, these authoritarians, these totalitarians. Like you, we need to ridicule them and like use humor to to sort of pierce that uh, unconscious gel that is in between people and the corporate media and, and the truth. Like we, making fun of these people is the best way to get out of this. They are hypocrites. They are. Uh, they, they have no principles at all. They blow up the wind and they've been consistently wrong, which is another thing I'm very happy that you've been doing on Twitter. Yeah, when it comes to like the narrative around the vaccine, how effective it will be, like that is one of the most potent things. When you just cut up a super, um, a, a super cut of them saying something in April, 2020, slowly transitioning it in the summer, 2020, fall 2020, throughout 2021, where it's two completely different messages being sent out at two different uh, times around the vaccine. Yeah, the, the, the receipts are available for anyone to uh, leverage them against this global elite class. Um, you know, the whole idea that the vaccines would never stop the spread. They, um, you know, they, they totally lied about that. There was every single top U.S. official and every pharmaceutical executive involved in this mRNA game was telling people that their shots would effectively eliminate the spread of the coronavirus. And, you know, if you go down this rabbit hole, it's so weird that, you know, it makes, it's very difficult. There's only like really a handful of people in the entire world that have a sophisticated understanding of mRNA um, technology to the point on like a cellular level where you can really explain it very well and what exactly is happening within your body. Um, that's why it's so important to hold these people accountable because you're like, okay, so you're supposed to be the expert and you told me this would happen. Why wouldn't, you know, you don't need to necessarily have the answers, especially as like a journalist or, you know, if you're using the Socratic method, um, it's very effective. You can just 
point out the hypocrisy, point out the deceit, ask them like what changed. Um, and sometimes they'll say like, oh, the, the science changed, you know, it mutated. So you guys didn't expect a mutation of the virus. Like I thought you guys were the experts, you know, you, the, the, you have to place the burden on these um, authoritarian tyrants that they need to be able to explain why it's not working and you can just continue to push them. And I think it opens up a lot of minds about these topics when they start to realize like, oh, hey, my doctor just uh, recommended I get my booster. And then I, you know, I started pressing my doctor and then my doctor like didn't seem to really know why I need number three or number four or number five. They just said, you know, the CDC told me that it was authorized, so I should do it. And it's like, you know, here's a chart and a model that shows. So like, there's just like all kinds of ways to infiltrate this narrative effectively. And I think that most thoughtful people by now are entirely skeptical or have dismissed these ridiculous government narratives to, um, so, you know, again, I think the momentum's definitely heading in the right direction. I do as well. Keep ridiculing freaks. Keep calling these people out. And people get angry when I talk about this stuff. Like, oh, it's so political. We talk about vaccines, climate change. This is a Bitcoin podcast, Marty. Stay away. It's all connected. It's all connected. Like if we let them succeed in this, this weird attempted takeover with the vaccine mandates and the, the passports and the restriction on civil liberties even further like, it is not bode well for the future of freedom in the digital age. Similarly, with climate change, if you let them control the energy, that is a base layer necessity for humanity. It is at the base layer of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for modern society. Uh, if you let them control that and uh, have granular control over your interaction with energy, that is not good for freedom and quality of life in the future. Likewise with money, with Bitcoin, with their attempted regulations around it. If they win there as well, freedom in the digital age gets severely reduced and hindered. Like these things are all connected. And that's what I, I don't like the Davos class wants to have your, your vaccine passport, your digital wallet, and your carbon tax in one nice app issued to you um, from the World Economic Forum. Like it's either have those things separate and run by the free market or uh, they get run by a bunch of totalitarian Malthusians who hate you. These people fucking hate you. That's the thing I, I, I want to make sure that you freaks understand as well. They don't care about you, which is uh, evident by the receipts that Jordan mentioned earlier. If you go back, they if they did care, they would be introspective about what they said in the first place and when it didn't pan out the way it, sh it should have in their understanding of it, they should have had the ability to pause, have some introspection, say, hey, maybe um, for the safety of, of all the people that are taking these experimental unauthorized vaccines that we should, um, we should probably pause. But no, you double, triple, quadruple, quintuple down. It's very frustrating. We've, we've entered the territory of an enormous sunk cost that is going to have giant ramifications for these people like Fauci and especially for the politicians that are you know, up for elections. The last thing they want to tell you is exactly that. Like, hey, you know, I think we fucked up that we, <laughs> we, we bought like tens of billions of dollars. Uh, we, we spent tens of billions of dollars of your money and, you, and we put you in debt um, 
in this system to pay for these supposed cures. And, oh, it looks like these cures aren't working as well as we thought they were and that they're not actually cures and that there's a lot of side effects to these cures and that you might need to take these cures forever. So it, it, for them, it, it's becoming a very difficult situation. Um, imagine if your promotion in your job or your, you know, your next raise or, or you, you had to close some type of deal based on the idea of like continuing to advance a narrative or you have to blow up that deal by telling people the truth. I think most people would just continue to move forward on that falsehood path. And I think that's exactly what the politicians are doing. Um, unfortunately, these, these sunk costs are growing exponentially at this point because um, you know, they obliterated uh, the economic power of the West um, and they continue to harm hundreds of millions of people through their policies and they've done all this harm. And I think they just like, for them to say, um, to admit to this harm, which is very clear, clear as day, it would you know, result in like French revolution type chaos, I think. So they prefer to just have their segment of like sheep that will defend them, have another segment of people that are confused and another segment of people that are awakened to reality and to hate them and despise them and want nothing to do with them. And we just need to continue to grow that latter group of people. Yes. Uh, that are, us, we're being labeled as disinformation spreaders, super spreaders of misinformation, uh, anti-vaxxers, which is hilarious. Like somebody, the whole, uh, it's so like low level, weak, but it works. It's effective. That's like the one thing you have to give the regime credit. They're very effective at, at tapping into the fear and leveraging it to get... Uh, the sheep, the the unconscious masses to um, to to fight on behalf of them. Uh, the the debunker, if you will. There's been a lot of debunking going on. Have you have you experienced any debunkers coming after you? Yeah, just recently, Snopes had um, a fact check. I think someone's done a fact check on me recently, but I kind of ignored them. And I was like, all right, fuck this. I'm responding. But Snopes did something um, maybe over the weekend or last week. I wrote something recently. Um, so I just like simply wrote like a quick blurb on my Substack that the, the, the CEO of Pfizer went on TV and he told people that two shots don't work anymore for COVID-19 and that you need three. Um, and he was quoted as saying that two shots, it's not, it's not an exact verbatim quote, but he essentially said that two quotes do little, if anything, to... Uh, against COVID-19, you know, whether it's uh, deaths, hospitalizations, uh, prevention of infection. And it was just like pretty much straightforward. Snopes comes around and says he was talking about Omicron and not general COVID-19. The problem with that argument and it, they deliberate, it's deliberately deceptive is that every time they gene sequence COVID-19 now, the Omicron strain pops up. It's got like, I think, 90, high 90s percent now of whenever something is gene sequenced in a lab. So COVID-19 is Omicron. So the, the CEO of Pfizer basically admitted that these shots seem to have an expiration date and that beyond a certain amount of time, whatever they're modeling, even with these like 
effed up models, they can't even show any type of benefit anymore. So they just like gave up on that. So they're like, all right, you need at least three. So, but Snope said that he was only talking about Omicron, so it doesn't matter. But it's like, it's another thing, like it's similar to this like FDA approved vaccine problem is that these shots were designed for the OG strain, the alpha strain that China slapped on the internet. And that strain is nowhere to be found. Like you, you can't, I don't think that they're for, for like over a year that someone has acquired that mutation. So Snopes basically said, oh, the vaccines are effective for general COVID-19, which like they don't add, doesn't really exist anymore. So when people talk about Omicron, they're really talking about COVID-19, but the fact checker is obviously like trying to cancel me essentially. So someone put them up to this and um, you know they're defending the pharmaceutical companies that probably sponsor their research because it seems that Pfizer, I don't know if you saw like those, um, there's like, there's a lot of videos circulating on social media about like, you know, all these corporate networks are sponsored by Pfizer. They, yeah. they have, they must have an enor- enormous advertising budget, like unbelievable. Oh. They must spend like, billions of dollars. And it's only gotten bigger. And it's only gotten bigger in the last two years. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, actually, Snopes is coming out to, well, actually, again, that right there highlights the people. How dumb are people? Like, we don't know how to teach people anything. Like, if you understand viruses, how viral diseases work, like they mutate throughout time. Like, and that's the other thing. Like, why don't we have any low level education about the nature of viruses? Viruses mutate and they mutate typically over time to become less virulent because they want to survive. And if they kill the host, the virus doesn't survive. And like, as we get more in Omicron is proving to be a pretty mild strain of the coronavirus, but there was never any talk about like, all right, this is going to move through us. It's a new virus. At first, it's going to be pretty virulent because our immune systems aren't used to this foreign agent, but as it, the foreign agent gets used to our immune systems and vice versa, it should become less virulent, which seems to be happening, but they're, they're not talking about that. They want you to get your third and fourth shot, which seems to be a profit motive and not really a health motive at this point. And then, yeah, you can't even talk about natural immunity. It's not even allowed to be broached in the, the conversation of the vaccine passports. Like me, I got Delta in June. I got an antibody test a few weeks ago. Antibodies are stronger than ever. They're, they're very high right now. But like, if I went to go eat in Philadelphia where I'm from right now, I'd have to show a vaccine passport. So I'd have to go get three shots. And I think you might've tweeted this. Like if you did want to get the vaccine, do I just get the latest booster or do I have to get like the three before it first? And how does this yeah, it's, work? it's a good way to beat the system. In, in a lot of these countries, they just require like a shot within six months. So a lot of people are going to be furious that are like four or five, six deep. And you can just kind of, I mean, if you choose to do so, like you can just like, you could be like a Novaxer that's like, oh, I really want to go to Hawaii or some shit on vacation. Then you just become a single vaxxer. So it's just like none of this, these policies really make any sense and there, there's no science behind any of it, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to ridicule because it's just like so absurd that the, the idea that, you know, you need to be, it, it seems that we've been like, those of us who have not accommodated like all the shots on schedule, we've been like canceled. Like they're talking about it. Like there's like no other people in the world that have not, that are not at three now or in the United States that are not three. Like, okay, so the CDC approved four. When are you going to get four? Like, all right, what if I'm just going to like get one and go somewhere? You know, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. 
No, none of this makes sense. We live in an absurdist clown world, but hopefully we're just at an inflection point right now. That's the thing too, we have to realize like being born when we were, I'm a 90s child as well. Uh, we were born at a very interesting time. I mean, it's a, an old Chinese curse or saying or whatever, but like literally like being thrown into society when it's discovering and building out the internet <laughs> the first generation of people. It's going to be tumultuous. You're going to have these conflicts. We've seen it throughout time with the printing press. Now we're seeing it with the internet. It's scary. It's volatile. It's also a time of great opportunity. We have the opportunity to build um, really cool freedom-enabling technology, whether that be via content distribution or the monetary network that is Bitcoin. And uh, a lot of people get dismayed and depressed about the state of the world, uh, which there are many reasons uh, to validate that feeling. Uh, but there are also many others that aren't highlighted as much that should uh, make you optimistic about the future and give you a sense of vigor as you go out into the world because there's so many opportunities to build uh, new systems and structures in the digital age. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that uh, I, I think that it, the worst has is hopefully the worst of COVID mania, at least is is behind us and that we can continue to use this momentum. And I was even thinking about this the other day, like so many minds have been opened to possibilities or realities that would not have been accessible to millions of people had it not been for this crazy stuff. So there's always this um this counter effect that I think you were alluding to earlier that, that I don't think that they really expect it that might actually create more problems for them in the long run. We can only hope. We can only hope. And hopefully people like yourself doing the work to put out better sources of information about these ideas that the mainstream and corporate media does not want to touch uh, helps push the ball forward and open up more minds. Jordan, this has been an incredible conversation. I'm keeping you along here. We're going over two hours now. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your Tuesday afternoon. Um, is there anything you think we should highlight before we wrap up here? Anything pertinent on top of your mind? Anything you're writing about, um, focusing on, that you don't think there's enough attention on at the moment? Um, yeah, I, I think the big one is just like, kind of as I was talking about earlier, that I want to convince as many people as possible to think about kind of like the general theme of this conversation now we're talking about how the elites, they don't care for you. They don't want what's best for you. You should not be sacrificing for them. You need to depart from this. People need to depart from this mentality that you have, you have some kind of fundamental obligation to the ruling regime, especially when that ruling regime is filled with awful people who hate you. So I, I think that's the <laughs> core message is to stop sacrificing for these people. Um, just be free and do what you want to do to contribute to the world. And uh, yeah, Marty, I just so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, of the show, and you know I, I really appreciate you you having me on. Yeah, I mean, uh, likewise, the feeling is mutual. I'm a huge fan of your work. I'm very excited. Have been very excited that you've been more vocal about your support for Bitcoin, your advocacy for Bitcoin. I think it's very important to begin getting Bitcoin outside of the Bitcoin-focused bubble that exists on Twitter and other areas of the Bitcoin ecosystem. And I mean, it's only natural that freedom lovers like yourself would get into it. And it's just been great to see um, you advocating for it more uh, alongside your, your independent journalism. So if you freaks 
do not follow Jordan. Find him on Twitter. We'll link to it in the show notes. Go subscribe to the dossier on Substack. That's dossier.substack.com, correct? Mm -hmm. D-O-S-S-I-E-R for you uncultured swine out there. That's how you spell dossier. Um, just kidding. I didn't mean to call you guys swine. Uh, yeah, I mean, this has been a pleasure, dude. We should do this again. I think I'm going to be in your neck of the woods. <clears throat> uh, most definitely in April for Bitcoin 2022. I'll be Possibly there. in Friday, or Friday, February as well. Um, so we'd love to meet up in person. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks, man. Well, thank you, freaks. Hope you enjoyed this one. Peace and love. Bye.